Julie at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 116 of Dogcast Radio, which won't follow the normal pattern of a Dogcast episode in that there'll be no news or fiction, but there will be lots of interviews from Crufts 2011, including an interview with Mark the TV vet Abraham. I mean, I never thought back in the day I'd be talking to as many people as I'm doing now about what I care about, and that's looking after animals. And how one dog helps his owner cope with life with disabilities. Because I have difficulty getting from sitting to standing, he comes and stands across in front of me as the command is, is brace. I put my hand on his neck and his rump and he does not move until I've levered myself up and got my balance. But before all that, Debbie Connolly is a dog and cat behaviourist who also treats goats, pigs and other pet livestock. Her television appearances include Dog Borstal and Britain's Most Embarrassing Pets. And she was at Crufts talking about her book. My book is Better Dog Behaviour. It was out on the 3rd of March and it's, it's been quite a long time coming because I was determined to write the book I wanted to write. And I was given the opportunity a few years ago to write what I would call a more traditional style of book, pictures of dogs sitting and treats. And To me, the work is much more about the dynamics of the people. And I always say to customers, you're half the problem and therefore half the answer. So I wanted to write a book that was funny. It had to reflect me. It had to be jargon-free. It had to be, you know, if I say your dog's a little devil, add your own words to that sentence... <laughs> then that's kind of what I mean. Yeah. And there are moments when the jargon's necessary to explain a point, but I wanted the book to be as if I was talking to somebody and how I would speak to a client, and it's been very hard to get somebody to give me a contract for that sort of book. But I'm very pleased. It, it's, it's a scary moment when it actually turns up and it's in your hand, especially there's a picture on the, on the back of me, um, and you look at it and think, oh, actually, yeah, that, that's a book. So it, it's a long, been a long time coming, but the book is really, it's funny, it's sad. I've had emails, emails from people who said they read it on the train and they were laughing hysterically at one point then sobbed at the next <laughs> bit. And, it, it, and it's great because that's, that was the feeling and the passion I put into it when I wrote it. So I'd like to think it's a different sort of dog book and as much about the people as it is about the dogs themselves. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's the way to make it stick in people's minds. If you can make it entertaining, it's not just do this, do this and your dog will. You know, that's how you've got to get it across. It is, absolutely. And, and it's, there, there's, there's, a, there's a central section which is about specifics of training particular problems. And I wanted the book, which is the feedback that I've got, actually, I wanted the book to be funny and entertaining. But yes, as you said, every joke's got a point, every story's got a point. And, and I've had several emails which are really funny. People say, well, I, I did laugh at it, but I kind of thought, oh, actually, that's me. A cringing laugh, one customer called it. But that's absolutely fine. The, the, there's an important chapter in it about buying a dog. And, of course, we're sitting here discussing this at Crufts. There's a chapter in about how to buy a dog. And we're all fighting the puppy farmers, and not just that, the backyard breeders. So the chapter's about how and where to get a dog from. And I have included some of the, the poor quality rescue work that goes on as well. And it's about 
the, the raw material, if your raw material is good, a well-bred, well-socialised, potentially the healthiest it could be puppy, you've got more chance of getting a decent adult out of it. And unfortunately, we are fighting the puppy farmers, the backyard breeders. But there's a chapter that gives you some proper tips for the first time about the sort of things they would say to you and what you should be asking. So that I see the book as a kind of cradle-to-grave thing. And on that note, the very last chapter is about that horrible moment we've all had to face when you have to say, is today the day I need to put my dog to sleep? And that's the one that's had quite a few people crying, apparently, including one customer who told me she was offered a tissue on the train because she was rather sobbing at it. And, and I've been there myself, and that's what I've written about. How did I make the decision and how hard it is? Particularly if you have a dog with a degenerative disease of some sort, you do every moment of every day think, has it gone too far? Should I do it? And it's horrible, but most people do make the right decision on the right day in the end. It sounds great. It sounds like, you know, every dog owner, it's, it's the advice every dog owner needs. Well, I'd like to think so. I would certainly like to think they can all come and buy it and benefit from it, of course. Um, what, what do you think, I mean, obviously you can't distill a whole book into a sentence, but what's, what's the most important thing with training that people should do or should know? I think the most important issue is training is never forget it's a dog. I am somebody who has five dogs who live in the house, sleep in the bedroom. I have seven cats as well. I, I, I do live what I think is a very good pet life with my dogs, but they're dogs. And, and to, to imagine they can have my moral values or decisions or want to watch the same things on the television is ridiculous. And I think it's an insult to them to, to anthropomorphise everything. I don't think that's appropriate. And I think a lot of the problems in, in training and relationships are down to people thinking it's made a moral judgment. You know, it did that on purpose to annoy me. It didn't. It, it just did it because it was bored or unsocialised or fed up with you or whatever. So I think the most important thing is try and get in the dog's head and see the world as a dog sees it. You'll be much more successful that way. Because I think some people mistake loving a dog, you know, and think, oh, if I love it, I'll carry it and I'll buy it this and that and the other. The dog doesn't give a monkey's how much something costs. You know, it, it's, that's not a dog's values as you say get in the dog's head it is and I once had I once had a customer I'm laughing now even saying it I can picture it I once had a customer and when I went to see her with this dog that had become quite aggressive to people visiting the house and people in the street she said to me my dog has a favourite outfit now, there is mention of this in the book, as somebody tweeted the other day, of what I think about dressing dogs up in clothes. And, as you can imagine, I don't think it's a terribly good idea. But this lady was adamant that this dog had three outfits and one was its favourite. Now, I do love my dogs, and I like to think that dogs do have a, some concept of emotion and attachment, but I've honestly never had them rifling through my drawers and stealing my clothes. Can I borrow Exactly. I, I don't think they'd fit them, although I do have quite big dogs. But... I do. This lady was an absolutely stunning, lovely young lady, but she did get me the Red Devil costume out and say, watch him when, he get, when I get this particular one out. So she got out the drawer and he's, he is hopping about and very excited. And I said to her, but he's done that because you did. You, and it, the, the dog was a very simple reflection. So I made her put the clothes away for a variety of reasons. Then we forgot about it for half an hour and I went back and I took them out of the drawer very calmly and just lifted them up and just put them on the side and I turned around the dog was just standing there looking at me and she was horrified absolutely horrified and she had projected that and because she'd got them out and gone woohoo clothes the dog went woohoo 
attention. Now, I just, I, I, I think it's, it's of concern to me because there are much ver- worse versions, as you can imagine, of that particular story. But it, it is of concern to me that somebody buys a dog and wants to put human claws on it. They, I, I think there's probably, I think I refer to this in the book, there's some kind of emotional need in the person that needs sorting. Don't use the dog as a psychiatrist. It's not an emotional crutch. It needs you to give it the best life you possibly can. Debbie also wanted to talk about what she was going to work on next. One of my big campaigns this year is I'm trying to create a, a bull breed project. Now, this is based on my experience, my attitude to how these things work. And what I'm interested in doing is taking some of these teams, these youths of the mini cities who have their bull breeds of, and rotties of a variety of sizes and types, and I'm trying to offer them an education project. Now, I spent two years trying to get the councils to offer me the slightest bit of funding for this and not got very far and got a rather surprising response from Birmingham City Council a few months ago whose youth centre, this is the youth team that deal with these kids, and what they told me was, and I have this in writing, the, the teens, the status dogs and the hoodies were not their priority. Now, we all know in the dog world that Birmingham is sadly rife with fighting and pit bulls. And I can't believe that the council are so short-sighted, they're not even prioritising it in any form, not just for the sake of my project. Now, my idea is, it's a bit carrot and stick. The carrot is, I'm going to offer you and your bull breed some training. To get that training, you have to neuter, you have to vaccinate. I'm I'm trying to get help with that. So you have a healthy, well-looked-after dog. What I'm offering you is, and this is where the controversial moment comes in, and I spent time last year with the Met Police discussing this, I'm going to offer them basic training leading up to shutson type work. We're talking bite training and tracking and jumping six-foot scales. Now, I can do that. It's part of the world I, I live in as well, and I have some very good contacts who would do it. The Met Police comment was a bemused, I can just see the headlines, and so can I. The truth is, for them to get to the point, I would even consider them offering them being offered the carrot version, which is the training they really want. They're going to have to come so far in education and control that the truth is most of them won't even get that far. But in the meantime, I've taught them a few things. Now, if, if I can just get two out of 50 to the stage where they're good enough to even compete in shots, so it opens the whole world to them. Now, the, the counter-argument to this is you're teaching hoodies to have dogs who bite. I'm not. There are doing that. I'm teaching them some respect and some manners and some training and as I said I don't expect to get them all through it. Funding is the issue. We're looking for sponsorship, we're looking for help but I think that this this is an important project because nobody else is doing anything positive with these kids and dogs and they're bothering people who don't even have dogs. They're on the street corners, they're stopping people going into parks. So it's a bit of my kind of soapbox campaign this year. My argument to the councils is quite simple. They're already spending tens of thousands on strays, on asbos, on barking complaints, on nuisance. If just a little bit of that money was diverted a tiny bit into something that was more educational, surely that's a better way to spend the money. So campaign this year, funding and sponsorship for a Train the Hoodies campaign. I mean, Schutzhund is misunderstood and misrepresented. And the bite in Schutzhund is to the sleeve. It's not aggression against a person, isn't it? So uh, that's a fight you have to 
in the first place. It, we're talking about a sports bait. We're talking about a dog that's been trained to grab the sleeve, rag it, let go immediately when it's told, and, and they're all wagging their tails and full of it. It's a game to them. It is not the type of bite work that the police do. I work with three police forces. It is a sports version. Now, you're talking about if you're any good at it, and there are a few bull breeds competing now, I'm pleased to say. I've seen a couple of American bulldogs doing shuts work. It's absolutely fantastic to see these breeds doing, with a level of control that you need, it's absolutely fantastic. And to see these dogs doing this, and, and the, the culture change that it could bring, because your dog has to be fit and healthy, you have to be disciplined. But it could open up real opportunities to travel and compete all over the world. And I, I think if, if I could get a teen, an inner city teen with his status dog in a shut zone competition, I think that was the best publicity for these kids and dogs we could ever have. And even if they don't get to a competition, the sense of achievement when you've trained your dog to do something and it will do it on command is incredible. Well, one of mine is a little bit lazy over the six-foot scale, I have I to say. My, <laughs> my beloved German Shepherd, well, I don't yeah. do it. I just no, stand I the other side with a biscuit. But, but I have some sympathy with her because yeah. she will do it, but she's quite bored with it. But the, the bull breeds, they're not the most agile of things. But the, the, the power that they have, they could do it, definitely. And I would love to see an American Bulldog in shots, um, sleep biting and tracking. I'd just love to see that, and it will happen one day. Well, if anyone can whip those hoodies and status dogs into shape, I'm sure Debbie can. You can find out more about Debbie at safepets.co.uk and we have links to her Facebook and Twitter feeds on the Dogcast Radio site. Crufts always has plenty of fascinating people to talk to and I found Wendy Morell had a very interesting story to tell. She was at Crufts with her assistance dog, Udo. He's my second assistance dog, so he's my successor. My first uh, assistance dog was a golden retriever called Caesar, who I had for just over nine years. And then you lost him quite suddenly? Yes, he passed away quite suddenly. He collapsed on a Thursday and um, we got him to the emergency vets and to hospital and so on. But he um, basically died of being a golden retriever. He had hemangiosarcoma and it was quite advanced by the time he collapsed. And so although we were able to use our other dog as a blood donor for Caesar, it really was a bit too late and he passed away. So, so Udo is very new to you, isn't he? He is. Udo was my Valentine's present from Dogs for the Disabled. Oh, lovely. I can't think yeah. of anything better. That's right. Well, I, I'd hoped that he might be my Christmas present, but the snow and everything else got in the way of that. Yeah. But uh, it was a really good day for him to arrive. Yeah. So you've been working with him for a while, but when did he actually qualify? He qualified on Monday. <laughs> Monday morning, we were up early doing all our practice before the instructors arrived to put him through his paces. I'd say that's jumping in at the deep end, isn't it? You qualify on Monday, Friday, you're at Crufts in the middle of dogs, people, noises, smells. That's right, and we've been here since Wednesday, but that was always the plan because um, I'm involved in quite a few things um, surrounding the sort of assistance dog movement. Um, Dogs for the Disabled knew what I'm involved in and were able to forward plan and give Udo some extra training so that he got the skills to be able to cope with such a busy environment so quickly. Ordinarily, their dogs, they would advise that they didn't go into such a public area for about six months until the partnership had had really time to settle in. Yeah, yeah. And you 
were saying you travel a lot, so they've had to put other um, arrangements into, into place with him as well. That's right. Um, Udo uh, has already been flying with his instructors. He's flown from uh, Bristol to Edinburgh and returned so that uh, they were able to check that he wasn't too stressed or anything on the flight. And he's uh, passport ready because I tend to travel um, into Europe and to the United States a reasonable amount and I always take my assistant's dog with me. I'm just thinking the States is a long journey and I always think I'm, I'm very practical and I sort of you know life with a dog it's 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 full of wee and poo really and I always think I on, a long, <laughs> on a long journey like that how do you cope with the toilet seat? Well what we tend to do with an assistance dog because you're together 24 hours a day you tend to know the routine very very well and we usually choose to fly at a time our dogs would normally be sleeping and as you know fit healthy dog doesn't normally get up in the night so um, that's how we do it that's our secret and the other thing that we tend to do is if uh, the dog wants a drink or something like that at the beginning of a long flight then we would normally give ice cubes to quench their thirst and then towards the end of the flight then we can allow them you know free drinking now, you, we've talked about the, you know, the possible stress of Crofts. He is actually, he's only 20 months, isn't he? He is. And he is so laid back. He couldn't give a monkeys about anybody walking. I mean, he'll, he's friendly, he'll say hello. But he'll, he's just lying down now, flat out, so relaxed and, and laid back. Yes, he is. And, you know, I'm really proud of him because he's coped tremendously well with it already. And like you say, he is only 20 months and he's only known me for three weeks. You know, so his far greater attachment at this moment in time is probably to his instructors and trainers. But, you know, he's uh, a confident dog. He's quite a different personality to Caesar, my previous dog. But I think we're going to have some fun together. I think so. Thank you ever so much and have a great Christmas. Thank you very much. And you too. There's so much to do and look forward to. Once she mentioned those long flights with dogs, I had to ask the toileting question. You can find out more about the charity who trained and supplied Udo at dogsforthedisabled.org. And Wendy is Golden Caesar, all one word, on Twitter, both of which we have a link to on the Dogcast site. Nowzad Dogs is a charity which is changing lives by rescuing animals. To find out more, I spoke to Penn Farthing. Uh, now that Dogs is a charity set up to help the strain abandoned dogs of Afghanistan. Um, and currently now we help soldiers who are serving in Afghanistan if they end up looking after maybe a puppy or even a kitten during their tour of duty. We'll help them at the end of that tour of duty get the dog or cat back to their family. Uh, we also now run a small animal shelter in Afghanistan itself. And is it a big problem out there, the, the strays? Yeah, I mean, for the last 30 odd years now, um, you think about obviously the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, then the rule of the Taliban, and now the basically coalition fight against the Taliban. For 30 years, there have been no stray dog uh, control programs. So, you know, there's just millions of dogs in Afghanistan that are mistreated, um, have no hope, um, and nobody actually you know, doing anything for them until basically we've come along. And what do you think is the attraction between the, the, the soldiers and, and these strays? Because, you know, it must be a very stressful situation. So is, is that the... 
why these relationships spring up? Yeah, I can actually talk from experience for that. Um, I was a Royal Marine Commando for 22 years and actually served in Afghanistan and I ended up befriending one of those dogs, which is actually now our dogs and I know your listeners can't hear him, but um, he's actually a brown Alsatian type dog, but he had his ears and tail docked um, and he was used for dog fights, so I broke up that dog fight um, and now Zad then adopted me, so at the end of the tour duty I couldn't leave him behind, I had to figure out how to get him out um, and that's how the Now Zad Dogs Charity started. So what are the practicalities of actually getting those dogs? Into the UK, presumably? Or? Uh, we send dogs now for soldiers, America, Canada, England, Scotland, um, South Africa, Australia, and the Philippines, and Holland. So we're, we've, we've become quite an international charity at the moment for obviously all the different troops that are serving in Afghanistan. And so how does that actually work? What are the practicalities of that? Um, <laughs> no, no, no. It's, uh, it's just it, it can be so complicated, and it can also be quite easy. Um, the, uh, the, the soldiers, wherever they're serving, have to obviously get hold of us. We then have to find out if we can actually get to their base, so whether that's um, in Deep Helmand province or whether it's in the north. Um, we then have a local driver who will go out for us to collect the dog, which is obviously fraught with danger as it is in itself. Um, but then once they come to our shelter, they're vaccinated. If we have time, we'll neuter them. Um, and then once we get an export license for that dog, we can then get it on an international flight and then out to wherever it's going. Um, so it, comes, it can be a quite a long, complicated process, or sometimes it can go quite smooth and easy, but that's not that often. Excellent. And where can people find out more about the charity online? Um, everything we've got is on our website, which is nowzad.com, N-O-W-Z-A-D.com, uh, which has then links to our Facebook page and to Twitter, and there's so many photographs and stories on there. I mean, they'll spend hours just reading through all the stories of the rescues for different soldiers. Well, I'm going to go home and do just that. Thank you very much. I did indeed go home and look at nowzad.com and I recommend you have a look at the About Us section to find out more about Penn and at the Our Rescues section to read about some of the animals the charity has sent safely to their new homes. I found it all very moving. You can also donate online or buy a copy of one of the books Penn has written telling of the charity's work. Mark Abraham was at Crufts in many capacities including being independent veterinary advisor to the Kennel Club of Great Britain and appearing in the UK Crufts television coverage. And on the afternoon I talked to him, he was signing copies of his new book, Vet on Call, My First Year as an Out-of-Hours Vet. And I wanted to know what kind of stories were in the book. I think when most people think of their vets, they think of the, the sort of general day practice. So it could be mixed practice, could be small animal, could be equine. But the cases you see on the whole are quite routine. So there's lots of boosters and there's lots of you know worming and fleeing and giving advice. Uh, routine operations like spaying and neutering and castration. And I think what I wanted to put down on paper is what happens in the middle of the night in an emergency clinic. Because it's kind of behind the scenes of a type of veterinary practice that not only people don't know about or don't hear of, um, but it's generally, for me, I think, more interesting because it's, it's emergencies, obviously, it's road accidents, it's caesareans, it's dealing with stressed owners, it's dealing with animals that are dying. Um, 
and I think it was. I always thought it'd be interesting for for people uh, to hear about what goes on behind the scenes, to how we get these animals better with the skeleton staff, because you're only working with one nurse, and yet you're still answering the phones, you're operating, uh, you're doing everything else, and you never know what's coming in next, and there could be three emergencies turn up. So triaging, of course, is important. So it's just really a chance for people to understand and to enjoy and to maybe cry a little bit about certain things that happen in the middle of the night and it's all about animals um, loads of different stories there's gerbils, there's, uh, there's a budgie there's cats, there's dogs, there's a horse there's a cow, loads of different stuff so it's, it's for people just to yeah, get, get an idea of what happens behind the scenes in an emergency practice and just to share some of my experiences with them I guess it's in the middle of the night when your animal's ill that you really appreciate the vet that, you know, if you have to go to the vet, that's when you really need them. It's, yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, also, you're, you're dealing with practices that you're not their vet for. So the emergency clinic that this is all about uh, looked after 13 practices. So immediately, you're not that person's vet. So, again, you're, you're earning trust immediately because, not that they don't trust you, but obviously in an ideal world, they take their pet to their vet in the middle of the night but of course the way things are these days it's rare to have a practice that does do night do their own nights um, so you're trying to earn trust you're trying to sort of befriend the, the owner the, the animal and you're working as a team to get the animal better um, so yeah it's a lot of psychological work that goes on in an emergency cl- clinic not just sort of veterinary work if you like and everyone working towards the same goal which is to get the pet better yeah, yeah. so what was your most challenging uh, visit while you were an out of bounds vet? Um, I think they're all quite challenging, but the one that tends to spring to mind is the Irish wolfhound that was just too big to actually x-ray in the practice because our x-ray facilities are normal for every veterinary practice, but it was literally such a big dog we couldn't fit it on the table to get a decent x-ray. So we had to take it somewhere else to get x-rayed, and that was the local hospital. And how we got it there... How we got it there was unbelievable and fascinating, but we did it. Uh, it's all in the book, and it's, it still makes me laugh, actually, just reading it back yeah, and remembering it. Yeah. So what was the reaction from the hospital stuff like that? Uh, hilarious, because we, it was, again, in the middle of the night, and when we turned up, we co- tried to cover the dog up with a blanket and went through A&E, and all these drunks were sort of rubbing their eyes, thinking it was some sort of hairy old man coming through on a, on a trolley, because this was like a 90, 100-kilo dog. So it's bigger than I'm bigger than, bigger than me. Um, so yeah, it was that was quite fascinating. But we needed to rule out something by X-raying, and there's only way you could do it. Um, so take me back to the beginning. Have you always been interested in animals? Yes, apparently. I say apparently because I was three. Uh, my mum tells me, and she's not a liar. Um, that when I was three, I took out a maggot from an, a wound in my tortoise's leg. Pet tortoise's leg called Speedy, who's in the book. Um, and I took it out with a twig in the back garden. And from then on, I just wanted to help animals. And it was the only thing I ever wanted to do, really. It was always what I wanted to do. And my social life during my teen years, which is covered in a few lines in the book, suffered immensely because all I wanted to do was be a vet and I had to work 
24-7. I was brilliant at homework. Yeah. I was a parent's dream child mm-hmm. because all I did was work and get top marks, although I just didn't have a social life or go to any discos, as they were called in the day. <laughs> yes, I remember. Uh, or do any naughty behaviour like <laughs> drinking or anything like that. So, yeah, quite a, uh, quite a boring childhood, but everything was, was tailored towards and focused towards getting into veterinary school, which I did, and... Yeah. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't say, have you made up for that lack of social life since? Yes. <laughs> OK, we'll leave it there. Just a little bit. Yes, I mean, I did... Uh, after I qualified and I, I worked in mixed practice for 18 months and my love of snowboarding took me to France and I did a season out there working behind a bar in a really cool bar in Val d'Isere where um, I also did a little bit of veterinary work at Prey Ski with people coming in with their dogs being hit by skiers and needing stitching up. Uh, delivered a litter of puppies behind the bar one day, treated kittens with conjunctivitis. So all of a sudden the barman, like everything stops and we're treating animals and using some of the drugs from the English doctor. So I didn't have a clinic out there, obviously, but just doing general first aid. Uh, and then I did another season and then another season. So, yeah, lots of, lots of making up for it since then. Now, what, what I'm fascinated with... Because you're known as Mark the TV vet, Abraham. Uh, I don't know whether it's TV official. for television, not transvestite. <laughs> yes, Mark. Yeah. I'll make that clear. But, which I'm not sure whether that's officially your, your middle name or not by now. Yes, but, it yeah. is now. I've actually got rid of my official middle name, and it's now Mark the TV vet. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> how do you go from de- delivering this litter of puppies behind a bar to being Mark the TV vet, Abraham? Uh, the, the thing that links everything I do is a passion for animals. Uh, it's a, a, a want and willingness to educate the public, um, whether you're doing it one-to-one in a consulting room, whether you're doing it in a radio interview, whether you're doing it on TV, to this morning or BBC Breakfast or My Pet Shame or any of the programmes I've been really lucky and fortunate enough to be on. Um, and I think with education comes a responsibility when you're in that sort of media role. And I like the fact that I keep my scrubs and I, I want to be approachable to the public. I want to be able to connect. I'm not a big fan of the whole uh, cords and check shirt and white coat and shirt and tie because I don't think these days people connect with that. And I think if you're educating people about their pets, you need to connect with them. So I think it's important to, to be the be people to be seen as the people's friend and you know even you come to Crufts and you do judge dog shows it's such a pleasure for people to come up and ask you what's wrong with their pets because you're you're approachable and I think if you're gonna if you like animals and you care about their welfare and you're getting messages across like where to get a puppy and anti-puppy farming obviously and uh, encouraging microchipping you need to be approachable for those messages to work successfully and that's that's my main mission is to educate people and make them better pet owners and and you know the spots i've had on tv and the radio and in the media even for crufts fm even for more for during crufts have been fantastic because i can get little messages out there that are important and hopefully change i mean a lot of people do these things already but change people's minds who haven't yet or haven't considered it and get them microchipping, get them vaccinating, get them looking after their dogs. And say so you're, you're behind the scenes. You, you, we're, we're sitting in Crofts now. You have a lot of people. You have different groups every day on the yeah. stand, don't you, to help publicise? Well, the lovely Kennel Club, who are very generous, they give me um, a stand every year um, because I kind of help them out in, in various ways, like on the telly and stuff. And, and I just thought, what do I need a stand for, really? 
I can't sort of publicise Mark the Vet. I mean, it would be ridiculous. Um, so I give my stand away every day to a, a charity or organisation or a campaign group that can't afford maybe to come uh, who their money is can then be spent on what they're doing. Um, so yesterday I had um, Bulgarian Street Dog Rescue. The day before I had Speaking Out for the Animals, which is a campaign group from the school in Norwich, who I'm their patron of. Today, Oldies Club, probably my favourite charity or one of them. Uh, again, I'm the patron. Um, and then tomorrow I've got Bee Puppy Farm Aware, who's the campaign group. So it's a pleasure for me to, to see them enjoying themselves, to give out literature, to collect money, to engage with the public and have a great position in Crufts for you know for doing just that and you know what they're good at and that's and that's raising awareness for their own causes and i think it's brilliant if there are young people listening now who want to be either a vet or to have a career with animals do you have any advice for them yeah get on with it and do it (laughs) um it's it's as simple as that really if you want to do it it's there if you don't then don't i know it sounds ridiculously simple but Everything is possible. I mean, I never thought back in the day I'd be talking to as many people as I'm doing now about what I care about, and that's looking after animals. Um, but it's a passion that's taken me there, and I'm thankful to everyone that's helped me along the way, from Paul O'Grady to Victoria Stillwell to everyone, really. Um, and I think if you're passionate about it, about anything, not just being a vet, about anything, working with animals, being a groomer, being a dog behaviourist, anything. There's some fantastic people out there to get advice from and to follow and to set as your role models. Anything's possible. And if you if you sort of um, donate all of your spare time to what you believe in and surrounding yourself by people that are doing what you what you want to do, you'll get there. And I think if you just remain open-minded and passionate and, and you listen... Um, you'll you'll get there easy and and you'll really enjoy it when you arrive and you'll look back and think I'm glad I did all that extra stuff because it's really handy and nothing is handed on a plate and people who know me well will know that when I'm not doing like stuff in the spotlight that it would seem I'm spending hours, days, even weeks just campaigning behind the scenes and writing God knows how many emails because I know that I can see the end goal and I know how I'm going to get there and over time you realise who's going to sort of join you and be your allies you realise sadly who isn't and you stick together with people and you work together because I, I believe as humans we've got a responsibility to look after animals and the quicker we all work together and realise that and just get on with it the better and I'm very not a fan of politics and I, I, one thing that annoys me about the pet world and one thing for people to be aware of if they're planning to work with animals is the politics and there's loads of it in the pet world unfortunately because it's not what it's all about. It's about helping animals, not fighting with a charity because of some ridiculous reason. So um, if everyone works together, we can achieve stuff for animals a lot quicker. Now, just to finish on a light note, this is something that I personally want to know, and I'm sure people listening want to know. How many pairs of scrubs do you have? One. I hope you wash it. No, I haven't. I've got loads of pairs of scrubs. Um, yeah, I just... I, it's funny, it, it all started... Uh, it, I don't even know if you want to know this, but I'll tell you anyway. It all started uh, when I did uh, Paul O'Grady show. And they said, can you come up... Uh, I said, what clothes shall I wear? And they said, can you bring some nice shoes, some, co- some nice trousers, a lovely shirt, uh, maybe a blazer? And I said, 
I can't. And they said, why? I said, because I haven't got any of those things. So they said, what have you got? I said, well, I've got jeans and T-shirt and trainers, or I've got my scrubs. I said, come in your scrubs. So I did that, and it kind of worked, and I kind of kept with it. And it's great for crafts because you can get slobbered on and, you know, get fur all over you and hair. And... Um, it's just great, and I think that you become recognisable as, as a vet or Mark the Vet, whatever. Um, and it's a pleasure for people to come over, ask advice, and if I can help their dogs out or cats out or budgies out, whatever, then it's, that's what I'm here for. Where can people find out more about you on the internet? It's a brilliant question. It's a brilliant question. And I didn't even ask you to tell you. Um, I've got a website, which is markthevet.com, M-A-R-C-T-H-E-V-E-T.com. I've got a Facebook page, which is Mark the Vet, and I'm also quite active on Twitter, as you may have realised, uh, which is at Mark the Vet, all one word. And hopefully I'll have some interesting news for you soon. Oh, no, actually, I've got an iPhone app coming out for dog owners in the next couple of weeks, which has got lots of pet dog tips on it. Um, which is going to be called Mark the Vet's Canine Care. And soon I shall have some interesting news from the States. Okay. So I'm going over there on Wednesday. Yeah. To, I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, <laughs> been, I've been very lucky to be invited over to the States on Wednesday by um, Pet Plan USA to attend the Humane Society of America Awards, Genesis Awards, that, uh, that honour animal welfare being portrayed in the entertainment industry. It's an A-list celebrity uh, event in Hollywood with Pierce Brosnan, Oprah, Melanie Griffiths, Sex and the City Girls, and I'm Pet Plan USA's guest of honour, um, with a view to hopefully doing some work out there and campaigning against puppy mills out there, and maybe doing a pup aid in LA. Um, that's my music festival in September, raising awareness about puppy farming. Um, and so, yeah, it just the sort of the, the audience gets bigger and bigger, and it's if you can help millions of animals, brilliant. You really are driven, aren't you? Have you noticed? <laughs> Just slightly. Yeah, I mean, the more you do, the more you realise you can achieve, and the more um, you, you meet amazing people around you, like yourself, who are sort of on your side and really keen to promote for the benefit of animals. It's a great feeling, yeah. because it's a, it's a real team effort. And I'm, I'm just so sick of politics, really, in, in the pet industry. And when you come to these events and you realise these people that come forward, like yourself, and they want to interview and they want to drive animal welfare issues forward and raise awareness and connect with people, it's an absolute pleasure to do. And I think we should, if we all did it, we can solve so many problems a lot quicker for the animal's sake. I set out in that interview just to find out about Mark's book. But I came out of the interview really impressed with what a thoroughly nice man he is and how down-to-earth he is. He certainly has his priorities sorted out, and we have all the links he mentioned on the Dogcast Radio site. On the day we talked, Mark was using his stand to promote the Oldies Club. There were several representatives of the charity with some older and very lovely dogs. To find out more, I had a quick word with Ron Wilkinson. Okay, it's about rehoming dogs over the age of seven. And uh, the dogs that come to us um, come from varied backgrounds. It could be that uh, a family's breaking up or it could be that somebody's having to go into rented accommodation. They need to be rehomed. We take them, foster them. We don't put any dogs into kennels. Uh, while they're being fostered, we assess them, make sure that they're cat-friendly, dog-friendly, whatever, children-friendly. And then we put them on the internet and try to find adoptive homes for them. Yeah. And, and why? 
why do dogs seven or over need you know a, a specific organisation? Yeah, sure. Um, unfortunately, there's been quite a lot of rescues that haven't been able to take dogs of, of that age because in the past people haven't wanted to take, take an older dog. They always wanted puppies and things like that. But actually, you know, we're trying to educate people that that isn't necessarily the, the best idea. An older dog has gone through the stage of chewing up your home and finished doing it. Uh, they've gone through the stage of rushing around and they've settled down a bit. Maybe don't wreck the furniture. So we can give you a dog that suits your needs. Uh, we've got an elderly lady of 92 that we're checking next week uh, to rehome a dog with. She just wants a little old dog that wants to actually sit with her all the time. We can find a dog of that variety to actually match the need. Yeah, brilliant. So it's meeting the needs of people as well as dogs? Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 we want to make sure that the dog and the person match correctly because the worst thing that can happen to it for us is for the dog to come back uh, after having gone out for an adoption. So we spend a lot of time checking the people's needs and assessing the dog to make sure that they match. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, my dog is eight and a half. And, I mean, he, he still thinks he's a puppy. Yep. So, I mean, you know, dogs over seven, there's, there's, there's life in the old dog yet, isn't there? Absolutely. When you think uh, some sort of crossbreeds will live, you know, 20, something like that, um, it's not old at all. And, uh, it, you know, there's not any sort of problems with... Um, <laughs> We, we spend about £300 on each dog when it comes in, uh, getting it correctly vetted to make sure that it's, uh, well, we have them neutered, uh, but we make sure they're chipped to make sure they're healthy. So you know exactly what you're getting uh, through the society. If we find that we have a dog that actually does have a long-term health problem uh, that is life-threatening, uh, we will keep it actually in the society ourselves. So we have one on the stand here today, Tag, who had um, a couple of... Uh, uh, cancerous um, tumours uh, that dog will stay with one of our fosterers for the rest of its life and the society will pay for it so. Excellent. And sort of what what sort of things can people do to support oldest pup? Okay, we obviously we need fundraising. Obviously we need adopters. I mean that's a great thing. But but we also need foster uh, fosterers and transporters and just general supporters really you know, to help us. Um, often we have to actually move animals from one end of the country to the other. So putting together a transport chain is quite difficult. Um, as I say, we spend quite a lot of money on each dog, so fundraisers uh, are yeah. quite important. But look, what keeps the society going is the fosterers and the adopters, so look, yeah. keep those coming as well. And where can people find out more about you on the internet? OK, on the internet, uh, we, we've got an internet site, www.oldies.org.uk. Uh, all of the dogs that we have uh, are on there. Uh, you can see all of their profiles. Uh, we also advertise on their dogs for other societies as well. So it's not just our, our dogs. You'll find some other uh, dogs on there. And you'll find there all the contact numbers and how you can help us as well. What a great idea to try and find older dogs, people who will appreciate them, without putting them through the stress of kennels. How wonderful. We have a link to the charity on the Dogcast Radio site. The next lady I spoke to I found truly inspirational. Sheila Sadler was at Crufts helping promote canine partners with her very own canine partner, Curly. Sheila had been a teacher for many years and then one day her life changed. Latterly I was teaching children with problems, special needs. I was working for a secondary school in Suffolk 
just come out of full-time teaching, decided to sort of take more leisure time. And um, we were going to a meeting. Uh, I was with a number of other members of staff in her car. Uh, we've got children's work in the back that we were going for a, a discussion about. Um, and unfortunately, she didn't see a car that was indicating to turn off. She swung into the oncoming traffic lane, hit the accelerator instead of the brake, and we went head on into an articulated lorry. And tragically, she lost her life. And I lost my um, mobility, my upper body strength, and the future that my husband and I had sort of planned had, um, was immediately compromised. And what happens after that is things that you take for granted, like picking up, suddenly become something that requires balance and concentration. And then you go through a whole gamut of emotions, anger, frustration, you feel guilty because you've survived and there's this whole gamut of, of frustration but the thing is is the dependence on other people I didn't want my husband to be my carer um, or my family and it took me four years to accept that a I was never going to get better and secondly that there were things out there in the world that made life quality of life it improved it um, we left Suffolk because it was a bit like a bereavement yeah. I found that um, colleagues not the children from the school they were fantastic but colleagues neighbours don't know what to say to you so they avoid you and I'm a people person and that again hits you and I think that's the beginning of the loss of self confidence yeah. um, I became a home tutor for the local authority but it's not the same as being in the classroom yeah. got me back in a car but it's not the same and then my husband got unexpected voluntary redundancy and we went we moved to Somerset which we know um, and then I looked into assistance dogs we'd been involved with guide dogs I'd had a blind friend well, since we were teenagers we were a foster home for guide dogs we already had two retrievers um, and I, I looked into it I knew it would make a difference but when I saw how much it cost to train one of these dogs I felt, and the charity will tell, have told me off for this, I felt that I couldn't ask for that sort of charity money to be spent on me. I'm, I'm retired, I've got a husband. So, in fact, my husband bought me a Golden Retriever puppy, which I started to train for myself, met the charity, and they took both of us into the um, training programme. Now, when I went away on my residential training with him, we do a fortnight. This is the dog that you've got now? No. No, no, with the, with the retriever. With the retriever. Dark red retriever. And because, of course, we bought him, yeah. he was used once for studs. So we still have his son. Yeah. He's my husband's dog. Trained with my Juno. Um, and when I went away on the residential... Um, that's the first time I've been away without John, my husband, since the road accident. And I was very apprehensive. I mean, I'm not young. But that was my overwhelming experience. My dog never got into his bed at night until I got into mine. He was my carer 24-7. And I met these people who's all ages, youngsters going off to college, university, where the dog had given them their independence. And we came home and I thought, this is something I can do. I can plan, I can write, I can make competitions. I knew my dog was the sort of dog that was social. 
Um, and then tragically, two years ago, age six, Juno died from something very rare and um, not hard to diagnose, and the bottom dropped out of my world for both of us. Yeah. Um, uh, but the charity were fantastic. They said I, I couldn't lose that legacy. Our life had changed. We'd made lots of money. He'd been an admirable um, ambassador for the charity, uh, made lots of new friends. I was out and about. I couldn't let that legacy go. But I couldn't have trained with another retriever. I just didn't think I'd be fair to them. So and I don't think the charity was surprised. And then um, October before last, I had an email with a picture from the main training headquarters saying with saying we have this special boy in advanced training that we think is the meant for you. We all agree he's a Bernese Mountain Dog Cross Golden Retriever. Come and meet him and see if you bond. And it was a bonding at first sight. He came and had a picture and put his paw on my arm and I sent it to the grandchildren um, because they were so upset from, from him and said my name is Mr Curly and I've chosen Nana Sheila to be my new partner and he's called Curly because he's named after um, a gentleman who's the managing director called Jeff Curley who he and his company Q Electricals have sponsored him, paid for all his training so we, we graduated, well, became official partners when he was only 18, 19 months, so very young. And um, basically, as a Bernese, he's really still a puppy. Yes. But um, he loves everybody. He's, he is just completely laid back. Um, we go and do schools. I did a pre-prep school at Millfield, two to seven-year-olds for the whole morning. I've devised um, activities that I get them involved in. And um, he's fantastic with children. And the same with the OAPs and the senior citizens, except that he will want to sit on their feet. So I have to make sure they're sitting down first. But, no, he makes us laugh. A sense of humour, I say to anybody in this sort of position, is very important. He loves our other dog who's the son of um, my first partner who is doing his bit because he is um, being stud and we are donating the puppies to canine partners so they are coming through as well <laughs> that's a lovely story because he's you know that both dogs have sort of changed your life and the charity has changed your life and you're doing your bit to give yeah. back with you know i think we all a lot of us feel that this is the way we can give back and now I keep a notebook by the bed, the second bedroom's full of merchandise I'm out sort of making contacts, we do outdoor events in the summer and my mind is so busy planning and writing articles and things um, that I haven't got time to be depressed yeah. and the grandchildren come as well, we did the um, my youngest son um, ran in the Great South Run with the two grandchildren and we all had these t-shirts I had made. Um, my five-year-old granddaughter will go round behind the chair if we're together and somebody speaks to him and she'll say, would you like a leaflet about what Nana's dog does? For so the whole family are involved. Um, but uh, no, he's, um, he loves everybody. <laughs> so if people want to find out more about yes. Canine Partners Online, is there a website? Please look on the website. There's little videos. You can see the dogs doing their tasks. Um, he he picks up anything I drop, he opens the washing machine door, he takes every item out, he puts it in the basket, he undoes the velcro on my shoes, he takes my socks off, he pulls my trousers off. 
because I have difficulty getting from sitting to standing, he comes and stands across in front of me as the command is, is brace. I put my hand on his neck and his rump and he does not move until I've li levered myself up and got my balance. He opens door handles, he presses buttons to open doors and traf change traffic lights, he gets things off the supermarket shelves. So, and you can see all that on the website, which is www.k9partners.org.uk. Well, I hope you and Curly have many more years of doing so much good for the charity that helped you. Well, yes, and I, you know, as I say, it, there's so many people, not all oldies like me, whose lives have completely changed, and the, the young people that are going away to college, um, the, you know, with a dog, that is their independence. They haven't got to say, I say to my, my dog has given me back my husband. Yeah. <laughs> he can be a husband now. <laughs> Sheila and Curly raised £2,000 for canine partners in their first year together, and it was a privilege to meet both of them. We have a link to the charity's website, as well as a photo of Sheila and Curly. And I've said before that doggy women are often formidable, and I think Sheila is certainly a force to be reckoned with, and very much a force for good. And now, on to another formidable doggy woman. Formidable in the nicest sense of the word. Carolyn Monteith is a trainer who conveys her passion for training through radio and television broadcasts, as well as writing articles and books to inspire people to make the most of life with their dog. I'm always intrigued with people's backgrounds, and I wanted to know about the path that had led to Carolyn working with dogs. You see, I have had the strangest background. I'll try, I'll try and keep this okay. short. Um, started off working, I mean, all the way through being, being a child and things like that. I always, horses and dogs were a huge part of my life. And I sort of knew I was always going to work with animals, but at that time there was no career progression in dogs, so I went into horses. And so I went through all the British Horse Society scheme. I learned how to be an instructor. I spent an awful lot of time training, training, schooling horses and young horses and training people with their horses. And the dogs sort of come as a bit of a sideline. Everyone sort of thinks, if you can do the horses, you must know about the dogs. Uh, and I was doing quite a lot of instructing at the time and someone said to me, to improve your instructing, you should go into a drama course. So I thought, oh, no, yeah, all right. So I went and did a drama course and to cut a long story, which is, I said it would be short, I said it would be short and it's long already. But to cut a long story short, I ended up working in theatre and I worked in the West End for about oh, not even ten years, went to drama school, did all the theatrical mm. lovey stuff that you do, um, and then thought, so I'm working every weekend and every evening, and I've not seen anybody who doesn't work in the theatre, and it's it's great, but it's very lovey and all of those things. So I thought, no, I need to get back to reality, feet on the ground time. Um, but I'd started to work out that horses wasn't the way I wanted to go, and I was actually more interested in doing the dogs that sort of came as a sort of alongside with the horses almost mm. I thought now this is where I want to go so in that way that you do I just sort of thought I'll call the Royal Veterinary College and they sort of <laughs> said well if you thought about animal behaviour I thought oh I could do that that sounds yeah. really really good they said well there's someone near you go go and see he's called, he's called Roger Mugford we think he does something to do with behaviour <laughs> mm. I said yeah I said I'll go and see him um, and once again my long story is getting really long I ended up working with him for quite a long time mm. um, he's lovely Roger's <laughs> Yeah. Um, and sort of picked his brains and learned a lot and went off and did every single course that I could possibly do in that time and learned as much as I possibly could so I saw what Roger was doing went out and saw what other people were doing then thought I'd better do some training so I did some training with Cope and all of these sort of things um, 
But Roger, much as I love him to death, and if you're listening, Roger, I apologise, I apologise, but timetable and scheduling for Roger is a little bit of a loose concept. Um, and so anytime he had articles to write or, you know, people would turn up to interview him, yeah, sometimes he would have done it and other times he'd have been off with his cows or he'd be off with a client or he'd be off doing all those things that Roger does because he's so incredibly busy. And so I ended up finding I was doing lots of that and sort of thought, yeah, you know, I'm quite enjoying doing this bit of it, so maybe it's time to go off and do it on my own, which is what I did. Um, and again, did as much training as I could, spent as much time with people whose opinions I respected. I also spent some time working with people whose opinions I don't respect. But Which that's is fine. useful sometimes. Well, it really is, because you look and then you think, well, I maybe wouldn't do it like that, or, oh, that really, really worked, because I don't think there's one way to train a dog or one way to do behaviour. I think you have to learn from as many people as possible. And you learn as much from watching and going, no, I really, really yeah. wouldn't do it like that, as you do from the incredibly inspiring people who yeah. you look at and go, you are just completely amazing. So it, I've sort of come that way. So horses via the theatre, via theatrical old lovies, and of course I then managed to pull in all of those aspects because I've now done five television series, um, lots of radio type things, and, and just bringing dogs to the media because that's how you reach the majority of people. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm now writing my fifth book um, which is oh, it's a crazy one it's a crazy one I've been following five dogs and owners um, in the show world so it was mostly for a year up to Crufts last year but then I'm doing what are they doing now type stuff yeah. and it's been a fantastic oh, wow, that sounds really interesting an article about it in the, the new Crufts magazine because mm. um, I followed five of them and it's taken me from I ended up at Britain's Got Talent in front of Simon Cowell not me the dog yeah the dog. yeah um, ended up at Brighton Gay Pride I've ended up in the intensive care unit I've ended, not me not <laughs> no, me that, yes, following, the um, following all my people uh, it was Ooh. just a great great journey it sounds like you picked the right people to follow you've got some good stories <laughs> I think, I think if you sort of think that there's a, a sort of stereotypical show person, I think I found out that in the last year that that just couldn't be further from the truth because the last thing any of these five are are stereotypical. They just couldn't be more different um, yeah. from from really sort of quite serious dog women to quite crazy, quite crazy people. And of course the big secret, which I've got to be very quiet because we're talking in the Kennel Club press office, is I've got a Kennel Club championship show judge who has talked off the record. Oh, a scoop. Okay, so maybe we need to have you back on and sort of talk to you about that when you can. Well, I can that. talk about that, but yes. watch, watch this space. Okay, we will. Um, yes, my, my championship show judge was, oh. after a few gin and tonics, slightly <laughs> indiscreet. <laughs> and I was slightly drunk, quite frankly. <laughs> but you managed to, to remember all to, yeah, yeah, okay. I, I was recording. <laughs> it was great. I listened to it the next morning and went, did they really say that? Oh, I was that just picturing that the next morning when you listened and go, wow. <laughs> no, it's kind of dynamite. I didn't realise they said that. Fantastic. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Now, I've read your um, articles. I won't say the years, because that sounds really, you know, I've read, you know, but, but I've read... It sounds I've, like I'm very, very yes, old. I'm in my to, yes, yes, I didn't want to make it sound like that, but I have read lots of your articles. Um, and it seems to me that you're passionate about training and sort of bringing this, lots of your articles on how to do this. I mean, I can remember one about sending the dog to a mat and getting, you know, good lie-down behaviour. And it's really useful, practical stuff, but it does seem to me you're passionate about it. I am so amazingly passionate, I can't tell you. I absolutely believe that being a pet's dog is probably the hardest job 
job we ever ask dogs to do uh, because we need them to be we need them to sort of not chase the children not knock over granny not take the fingers off the postman not chase the cat be happy when we leave them alone but if we want to take them out to parties they've got to come with us I think we expect so much from pet dogs and so what I'm really passionate about is that people have the best possible relationship they can with their dog they make their dog the best canine person that he can possibly be and just how much fun it is because that's why we have dogs in the first place we have dogs to enhance our life and to make our lives better and there's far too many people out there making it all very serious and very you know wrestle them to the ground and show them who was boss and all this no you don't you've just got to be consistent the rules always have to stay the same i'm a mad passionate person about positive training positive doesn't mean permissive you can create all the same ground rules all the same boundaries but you do it in a way that makes your dog your best friend your dog looks at you and just goes oh i love you because you're just so lovely i want the dog who does what i ask him to do because he wants to and not because he's too scared not to and that's what all my training about but it's got to be practical you know i mean i don't do obedience training or working trials or any of those sort of things because that side of things doesn't particularly appeal to me what i want is i want a dog who i can take out and about and he'll do all the practical things and in my dog's case do the silly things as well you know i mean he'll ride a skateboard or go and get me my bath phone because that's the sort of stuff that i think is just really 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 good fun so that's what it's all about for me it's about fun and it's about making dogs what they should be that fun part of your life that's just so exciting yeah yeah i mean in a way until you've actually trained i mean you can train a sit and sort of the basic behavior but until you've trained a bit you know a trick and then you can say to your friends, look at what my dog could do. And that is a real kick, isn't it? Well, it really, really is. I mean, you sort of say, look how good my dog's obedience retrieve is. And everyone goes, yeah, yeah, whatever. If you go, look, my dog can go and get me my mobile phone. And then go, they go, wow, that's fantastic. And actually, it's exactly the same training. There's yes. absolutely no difference at all. But suddenly it becomes fun and exciting and something that you can show off. And one of the great things about that is children really get into that as well. Children go, look what I've trained my dog to do. My dog waves and my dog... I said earlier on, my dog can ride a skateboard. It's not a difficult thing to teach, but anyone who teaches their dog to do it, kids especially, just go, my dog rides a skateboard, isn't that cool, isn't that fantastic? Yeah. And it, you know, it's no harder than doing half the other things that we ask them to do. But it just somehow makes people feel that their dog's a bit special. Yeah. It's like when you dress up, you teach the dog to lie down on its side, but you call it bang. Yeah. And you, it's, it's, dress, it's staging it, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, my, my dog dies. My dog's actually really, really funny because I do lots of demonstrations with my dog. Mm. So I point my fingers at him and say bang and he dies. And the first time I did a demonstration with him on a hard floor, he wasn't 100% sure about doing it. And so he sort of staggered a little bit. And of course, everybody laughed because it looked really, really funny. <laughs> So now he will stagger the length of the room and he looks like this Shakespearean actor going, I'm going, I'm going any minute now, I'm going. He watch, I, oh, I'm, no, no, I've recovered, no, no, I'm dying, I'm dying. Um, because he knows it gets a laugh. And that, that's, that's the whole thing, but dogs love to please. They love to just think they're doing something. I mean, I, I say my dog's a theatrical old ham because he plays up for laughs. Where does he get it from? No, no, well, I, I say to myself in my best theatrical voice. <laughs> But I mean, I, I, I think people say that, you know, people become like their dogs. I don't think so. I think your dog reflects back to you what yeah. you put into them. So, yes, my dog probably is a theatrical old ham, but it's my fault. What can I say? <laughs> so, 
Digby is your dog, isn't he? Digby, he's a Polish, uh, he's a Polish lowland sheepdog. That's it, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and he's just awesome. Mm. He's, he, he, he looks gorgeous. So what do you and Digby like to do together best? Oh, I mean, what don't we like to do together? I mean, we, we both enjoy doing tricks and doing fun stuff. Mm. Digby did his first professional photo shoot, I think, when he was about four months old, wow. and for a while was the most photographed dog in the country. And he's great, because he knows exactly how to do it. You know, he goes into it, again, theatrical. He goes out, <laughs> he finds his light, and it's like, this side good, how about this side? So, I mean, he enjoys doing all the things I enjoy doing, but that's because I've made him a huge part of my life. Yeah. So he comes everywhere with me, and I mean, he's an old boy now, he's 13 and a half, and so we've sort of... He knows me really well. I know him really well, and so we we just go out and have fun together. But I think that's that's the key. He's always been a huge part of my life, and I think that's. I, I don't think you should get a dog unless you actually are prepared to make them that enormous part of your life. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely agree with you. Absolutely. <laughs> um, where can people find out more about you on the internet? Um, there's my website, which is dogtalk.co.uk. I've been filming some fantastic dog training films with Dogs Trust, who are just an incredible charity, and I love them to bits. Um, but I've got 45 dog training films on there, and you can find those at youtube.com forward slash Dogs Trust Training, all one word, and they're all on there. Um, and I don't shut up ever, so you can find stuff about me absolutely everywhere. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of Croft. Oh, I will do if my feet can cope and my credit card can cope. <laughs> you can click through to both those links that Carolyn mentioned on the Dogcast Radio site. And I've really enjoyed meeting Carolyn because I've admired her articles and the obvious enjoyment of training that she wants to share with other dog owners for quite a while. We had a fantastic Crufts 2011 and we spent more time than usual sitting watching the activities in the main arena which was not only entertaining, but gave welcome relief to our tired feet. I'm very lucky in that I took Buddy with me to Crufts for the third year running, and he loves being among so many people who are not just willing, but eager to give him some attention. Our next show will return to the regular Dogcast format, and will include interviews on some research currently going on into the treatment of osteoarthritis in dogs, and Nikki Mustaki talking about the Pet Postcard Project and Nitro's Law. Plus, of course, the news and all the usual features. Till next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. By phone from the UK, you can contact us on 0121-288-0922. From the US, you can contact us on our American number, which is 315-849-2022. From any other country, you'll need your international exit code and then 4412128809. You can contact us on Skype with the ident Dogcast Radio. That's all one word, Dogcast Radio. By email, you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com. When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. 
All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. Why don't dogs make good dancers? Because they have two left feet.